Today I'm going to give you the second part of my message that I started last week called Unsaved Christians. And uh, my text verse is a very sobering verse out of Matthew 7. In fact, if you would please stand with me, just in honor of reading God's word. These are the words of Jesus himself out of Matthew 7, 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, you realize that day is coming. That's real life. This isn't a novel. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You know, one of the most uh, sobering things about this verse is that we find out from this that it's not enough that we know him. He has to know us too. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for everybody that's here this morning, God, and everybody that's watching online, Father. I pray that your spirit would have your way during this time. Holy Spirit, come. You are welcome in this place. Lord, we lift up Pastor Bowen to you today. We pray, Father God, that you would invade that room in that hospital where he is right now, that you would continue to heal his body in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you today that you are the resurrection and you are the life. And God, we pray that that resurrection and that life would be breathed into his body in Jesus' name. God, and that you would give that whole family a peace that goes against any other understanding. Father, they would be able to rest in you and trust you during this time. And we thank you for it, Lord. And I pray that today in my message that my words would be your words, that you'd speak through me. God, and that our hearts would be great soil, that your word would produce fruit in our lives for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. So this term, unsaved Christians, might sound weird to you, especially if you weren't here last week. I kind of explained a little bit last week. It's kind of an oxymoron. It doesn't make really any sense because obviously we know that you're either a Christian or you're unsaved. There's only two camps, right? And so to be an unsaved Christian, what does that mean? Well, this is a very prevalent idea that today in our culture, you can be considered a Christian by society even if you don't adhere to or live by the tenets of faith that are laid out in the Word of God. There's a cultural aspect about being a Christian. In fact, somebody, some people would call the term a cultural Christian, where you can identify as a Christian for, for reasons that have nothing to do with the Word of God. That's something that you see in our society today, right? That you can even be considered a Christian by heritage. You know, like you inherited it like you would your blue eyes. You know, you inherited that from your dad. You can inherit your Christianity because, you know, your mom's a Christian or, or your grandpa was a pastor or your, your uncle took you to church when you were a kid or something like that. And you can, you can be a Christian by heritage or by inheritance. And really, at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with the word of God or the words of Jesus and what he would call us to live as a follower of his. And it really, if you look at Jesus' words, we know that cultural Christianity has nothing to do with actual Christianity, that it is, a, it is a counterfeit, but it is very prevalent. It has nothing to do with the words that Jesus has said that we see documented in the word of God, that he tells us to deny himself or ourselves, that he tells us to take up our cross and follow him, that he says that if you want to save your life, you're actually going to lose it, but if you lose your life for me, you'll save it. That has nothing to do with cultural Christianity. Those that would adhere to the cultural aspect of the faith want nothing to do with the actual words of Jesus. They want to do with the idea that, well, I'm, I live in the United States, and that's kind of the mainline faith in this country, and I know people that have been saved, and I went to a church on Christmas one time, so that's kind of what I am. I'm a Christian. And, you know, I'm not here today to talk about the people outside of this building that would say they're Christians when they really don't know Jesus. I'm here today to talk to us about those of us that are inside the building that would call ourselves a Christian in the faith that maybe we know Jesus, but he doesn't really know us. Because it's very important, according to my text verse today, that Jesus knows us because he said that he will tell some on that day, I never knew you. Even those that had the look of someone that would be a follower of Jesus in their life. Because you see, the Christ, cultural Christianity in the church is harder to spot than it is outside of the church. Out there, it's easy to spot, right? Because you could see that so many people, they just, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I think the latest polls still say that 65% of Americans say they're Christians. 
And you and I both know that it's nowhere close to that number, right? But in the church, it's a little harder to spot because we know what it looks like. We know how to make it look like we are who we say we are because there are outward workings of the faith that we can do without necessarily having the relationship that, with Jesus that he would want us to have. So it can be a little more difficult to spot it. Because see, if you notice here in my text verse, Jesus, when he said that, that there were those that said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? He didn't deny that they did them. He didn't say, no, you didn't. You didn't do any miracles. You didn't cast out any demons. You didn't prophesy in my name. You didn't do any of those. He didn't, he didn't say they didn't do it. He actually, by not saying he didn't do it, he's almost admitting that they did do it. But he's still saying, I still didn't know you. And how many of us in the church sometimes can fall into that if we're not careful, where we, we know what to do. We can do the things, we can speak the Christian way, but not necessarily have Jesus really know who we are. So the, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us that he has to know us. It's very, very important that he knows us. So I want to look at this my text verse a little bit and break it down just for a minute. He says that there will be those that say, Lord, Lord. And not all those that say that are going to heaven. So he's saying that invoking his name is not enough. Speaking the Christian language, Christianese as we like to call it so eloquently, is not enough. Having the aspects or knowing the things to say to be an orator of Christian principles is not enough. In fact, he's telling us that we ha he has to know us. So for him to know us, we have to really know him. There's a verse in Acts 19 that kind of exemplifies this. So the, the church had just started. The early church just got going. Uh, the Holy Spirit just came on the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, we're celebrating today. Today's Pentecost Sunday. 50 days after Easter, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world to begin the church that we know of today. And so the church is just starting. Apostles are going around, and people are getting saved like crazy. People are getting healed, set free, set free from demons, all kinds of stuff. And there's people that are watching this but don't really have a relationship with Jesus, and they're trying to do the same things. And so in Acts 19, we see what happens in that scenario. In verse 13, it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So these were just Jews that were just going around trying to do what they saw others do. They would say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So the demon here gives us some insight. He actually is teaching us something here. You can learn something from a demon. God can use anybody to teach us something. So we learn something that invoking the name of Jesus without the relationship with Jesus gives us nothing. The demon is saying, I don't know you. He's saying, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but I don't know you, which means if I don't know you, that means Jesus doesn't know you, because if Jesus knows you, you'd have authority, and I'd be getting my, my tail out of here, right? <laughs> Consequently, the demon says, I don't know you, so that means Jesus doesn't know you, so I ain't afraid of you, so he jumped on him and beat up seven of them and sent him out butt naked, right? How crazy is that? This, this idea that, you know what, we just, have to, we just have to know who Jesus is and know what he did, and that's enough, it doesn't work. Because you're, they're missing the relationship here, and this demon says, I'm not afraid of you. You have no authority. You have nothing to, to send me packing because you don't really know Jesus. You just know about him. That's powerful. And it wasn't that they were just throwing around his name flippantly. It was that they had no relationship with him. And, you know, this is the kind of thing. This doesn't happen to us today. Like I said, we can hide it a little better if we really don't have that relationship. We can look like a Christian, and chances are a demon-possessed dude's not going to jump on you and beat you and strip you of your clothes, right? But, you know, when you look at this, this was actually an act of mercy on God's part that they were judged in this way the way they were. Because if it didn't, if it didn't happen here and it happens on that day, it's a different story. Because, in fact, the next verse in that passage is verse 17. Look what it says. It said, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So this was an act of mercy for God 
to show these guys, hey, it's not enough to just say my name. Chances are those seven guys probably got saved when they realized, whoa, we didn't do something right here. But we don't have that happen to us, and we can go our whole life hiding it and invoking the name of Jesus and doing what we think we need to do. And if we don't get it right before we get before God at that great day, it's going to be a different situation. That's when he will say, get away from me, I never knew you. It's sobering, isn't it? I know I want to know what it looks like. Because he says in that passage, he says, in my text verse, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. He says, I will tell them plainly. He says, I will tell them frankly and without regret. I never knew you. I don't have the first clue who you are. You know, this idea that we have this sweet, docile Jesus that we teach in the church sometimes that's just got his hat in his hand, his head down, and he's just so happy if we just give him something, if we just throw him a bone, if we just tip our hat to him, if we just do something for him, that he's so happy about that that everything else is okay when there's no life change, there's no difference in us, but you know what, I said a prayer one time and I know Jesus likes that, so I'm good. The idea that we think Jesus is this docile, hat in hand person is not the Jesus of the Bible. He says very clearly in here, I will tell them plainly, I will tell them sharply, I will tell them harshly, I do not know you. Jesus is not looking for us to tip our hat to him, to like his posts on Facebook, to just give him a little something here or there and to throw him our leftovers. He wants everything. In fact, in Matthew 10, 38, he says very clearly, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Not worthy of me. That's not the, that's not the head down, sweet little Jesus we talk about sometimes in church. That's not a Jesus that's looking for our leftovers. He's saying if you don't take up your cross, the cross is a symbol of death. If you don't die to yourself, you're not worthy of me. And let me tell you, this this idea that, that God is just so full of grace and if we just give him a little something, everything else will work itself out. This misappropriation of grace is keeping more people away from God than any devil ever could. I'm telling you, church, it's not about just giving him a little bit. He wants it all. He demands it all. He demands our life. If we want him to say, I know you, you are mine. If we want him to say that to us, it is not what it looks like in the masses and even in a lot of the churches. Don't buy the lie. Don't don't follow the masses. The masses will lead you astray. The masses in the faith will lead you astray. The Bible's very clear that the road that leads to life is narrow. It's narrow. The masses are on the wide road. Don't follow those. Follow the narrow road. Know what the scripture says. Jesus says multiple times in the scriptures, let the reader understand what I'm saying. We have to understand what he is saying and what he's doing. So who does he know? He says it in my text verse very clearly. He says, the one I know is the one who does the will of my Father. He is the one who will be able to be with me in glory. So if the one who does God's will will be part of heaven, I guess I need to know what God's will is. You know, we throw around the term God's will very flippantly too. Like, what's God's will for my life? When we talk, really, we're talking about what's God, God's plan for me to do. Like, is it God's will for me to go to Africa? Is it God's will for me to marry this person? Is it God's will for me to take this new job? Is it God's will for me this? That's all fine, but that's really just life plans. That's not really God's will. God's will is the same for each and every follower of Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We have to understand what his will is. That's how we are known by him. You know what his will is for us? It is that we would serve him and live for him and have an intimate relationship with him, what he paid the price for us to be able to do. It's to know him deeply and intimately. Paul says, I have forsaken all things apart from knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is the will of the Father in heaven for you, is to know him. And you cannot know him unless you are dedicated, committed, and passionate about him. You know, my very, the very next verse from my text verse in Matthew 7 and verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he goes on to give this parable. Many of you know this parable of a, he, two houses. A guy builds a house on a rock. A guy builds a house on sand. He says, the rains come, the waters rise, the winds blow, the house on the sand is destroyed, the house on the rock stands. 
It stays, right? So he's saying anyone who puts these words into practice, that is what they look like. Let me tell you something. These two houses look exactly the same. What you can see looks the same on both of them. The difference is the foundation. The only difference is the stuff you can't see. Jesus is telling us here, I don't care about what you can see, near as much as what I care about what you can't see. And the foundation of the house built on the rock is putting his words into practice. That is about living for him. That is about relationship with him. That is about abandoning the things of this world and focusing your life and living your faith in Jesus. That's what it's about. That is the will of God for each and every one of us. You are not a Christian because you are in church today. You are not a Christian because you said a prayer 20 years ago. You are not a Christian because you're what, most of your friends are Christians. Youth, you're not Christians because you're in a youth group. You're not a Christian because most of your friends are Christians. That's not what makes you a Christian. We're not Christians because of the outward things. We're Christians because of what the foundation is that the house is built on. Those things that the house is important too. The things we do are important. But what makes you a follower of Jesus is the foundation. It's what's on the inside. And I'm telling you guys, it's what the people can't see. You know, the majority of my faith, overwhelming majority of my faith, no one ever sees it. Because it's in the privacy of my own room, praying, reading my Bible. I don't stand up in front of a bunch of people to read my Bible to show them how spiritual I am. I do it in the privacy of my office early in the morning. And I'm not saying we're supposed to hide all that, but I'm just saying there's a lot of our faith when you, where you really shows whether or not you're devoted to Jesus is not seen by people. Church is easy. It's fun to come to church, especially when the preaching's this good. That wasn't a joke. It's about what's underneath the surface. So we'll finish our cultural Christian checkup today. We started it last week. I gave you two last week. It was admiration or adoration. Then it was posture or passion. And today I'm going to give you convenience or completeness and safety or sacrifice. So let's jump right in. Is your faith about convenience or completeness? We're doing a checkup today. I'm telling you, church, this is important for all of us to do, including me and you, all of us to always be checking our heart to see where it's at because there is always, always things in this world that are pulling our heart away. Always. We need to check ourselves. It is not once saved, always saved. I'm sorry. If you grew up Baptist and you believe that, I'm sorry. It's just not what the Bible says. It is about living the life of faith. And I love Baptists. I'm not ripping on Baptists. Half my friends are Baptists. There's a lot of churches that preach once saved, always saved. There's churches that preach prosperity gospel. There's a lot of errors in preaching. I'm sure I've had plenty myself. But I'm telling you, don't buy the lie that if I've said a prayer one time at an altar, that I'm good to go. The Bible contradicts that all day. And I'll even show you a few scriptures today that, that backs that up. So is your faith about convenience or completeness? Let me give you the definition of convenience. Able to proceed with something with little effort or difficulty. Also easy, that's another word for convenience. So the question is, do you expect your faith to be easy? Do you expect it to be easy? Do you get frustrated with God when things get difficult? Now, we've all been there. We've all had to deal at, at moments in, in time where we've had a frustration that's been aimed towards God. The, the question is, do you always go to that place? Is that part of your pattern, that every time things are difficult, you get frustrated with God? Because that tells me you're at a place of where your faith is about convenience. And let me tell you, the absurdity of us getting upset with God when, when we have difficulty in our life, the only comparison I can make to it that makes the most sense to me is if you were to play the lottery and you won and you hit the, the Powerball or whatever that thing's called and you won $300 million and you're the only winner and then you find out you got to pay taxes on it and you're frustrated about it. Let me tell you, there isn't a human being on the planet that's going to be sympathetic towards you. Nobody. Because you know Why? Because you did nothing to earn that money. You went into a gas station, bought a ticket, and you hit some numbers, and you got this windfall of money, so no one's going to feel sorry for you that you got to pay some taxes. And us getting frustrated with God when something doesn't go right in our life is the same thing. The fact that we would get frustrated with God who gives us everything we have is absurd. Think about it. The very air we breathe comes from him. Everything we have, every blessing in this life, every good thing in this entire universe comes from God. But man, if something doesn't go my way, now I'm mad at God. When you didn't do anything to deserve the good that comes, and so when the, when the tough times come, if, if you're focused on being angry with God, it tells me that all you care about is the convenience factor of your faith. 
is that it should be easy because I'm serving God, because I love God, so he should be dealing with all these situations in my life. And we'll take scripture out of context to show that God should fix this for me because that's what he's supposed to do because I'm one of his children. When really that's not God's responsibility at all. But you see, we have an uphill battle when it comes to convenience in our faith because we live in a society that is absolutely obsessed with convenience, don't we? Obsessed with convenience. We'll pay more for a product if it's more convenient than the product right beside it that's cheaper if it's not as convenient. Amazon has built an empire on convenience. You go on your computer, you do a couple clicks, two days later, a box magically appears on your porch. It's all about convenience. Food nowadays, it's all about convenience. Microwave. Why in the world would I wait for my big oven to heat up when I can nuke it? Right? Or if you don't want to even do that, you just make a phone call, they bring it to your front door in a bag. It's pretty cool. Or if you just want to go out, you can go to a drive-thru. Drive-thrus are all about convenience. I don't want to get out of my car. Are you kidding? Or if you don't even want to talk to somebody, you can order it online, pull up to the curb, they'll bring it to you. I mean, it's incredible. It's everything is about convenience in our culture nowadays. Laptops, they're all about convenience. Like, I can't work at my desk. I have to be at a coffee shop with a $6 coffee to be able to work, right? So we do the laptop thing and the tablets and the, iPhone, the cell phones. Everything is about convenience. That's, marketing is obsessed with telling you that our product is convenient and it'll make your life easier. And you know what? That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that in society. I like to be efficient. I like things that are more efficient than other things. But the issue is when it bleeds into our faith, it's dangerous. Because our faith is not meant to be convenient. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be done with little resistance. Some of you may have gotten saved because somebody told you one day that if you give your life to Jesus, he'll make your life better. That's just not how it works. Now, I'm not here to be a downer. I'm not saying a life with Jesus is just so hard and everything's horrible. Actually, I would say the opposite. A life with Jesus fully committed to him is the best thing that you could ever do. It's the greatest experience on this side of heaven without a question. But it's not about convenience. It's not about making sure that everything just works out fine. It's not like Jesus is meant to be our personal life fixer that we're just supposed to be able to go through life easy. That is not what our faith is about. And if that is your focus of your faith, you might be a cultural Christian because we're not meant to pursue it that way. Jesus laying down his life wasn't convenient. There's nothing about the gospel that is convenient for us. You will not find in the word anywhere where it says that your life should be easier because you're living for Jesus. In fact, if you do find it, please email it to me because I would love that. But that's just not how it works. It's not about convenience. In fact, you could argue that living a life committed to Jesus is actually going to be very challenging because you're going uphill from the masses, from the stream. But again, the masses will lead you astray. If you don't want to be a cultural Christian, you must be complete in him. We're not worried about convenience. We're worried about completeness. We're worried about being found in him, being known by him, knowing him passionately, that our focus of our life would be on him and not on convenience because you cannot be both. We cannot have a convenience approach to the gospel because this is not the gospel. It's not about getting the things we want from Jesus but not taking the other things that might make it more of a challenge, right? Christianity is not a buffet. We go to a buffet, you get to pick and choose what you want. That's not the life of faith. We don't get to say, yeah, you know what, I'll take some blessing. Ooh, hold the purity. I don't want to deal with that. I, I need to do my stuff. You know, give me some favor here. Holiness, no, that tastes nasty. I don't want holiness. That's yucky. We don't get to treat it like we're at Golden Corral, right? We take it all. Christianity, the faith, the life of faith is about taking it all. It is about giving your life to Jesus and saying, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. It's not optional, church. It's not optional for us. Okay, and then the fourth one is, is your faith about safety or sacrifice? You know, as much as society is about convenience, it's also a lot about safety. You notice a trend here? A lot of the things that society puts a pinnacle or puts a premium on are contrary to God's word, contrary to the gospel. I'm not saying the gospel is not about safety, that we're supposed to be reckless, but it's not meant to be our top priority. It's just about our safety and our comfort and the things that we think we need. Because here's the thing. 
the, the, the vehicle that society uses to keep us safe is fear. It's all about fear. Even in marketing, you know, we talk about convenience. They market safety too, and what they do to try to get you to buy their stuff is to convince you that their competitor stuff isn't as safe as theirs. You know, buy our car, we have a better crash test rating than they do. You buy, you, you buy their car, you have an accident, you're going to die. You buy ours, you'll walk away fine, right? All kinds of stuff that would make us think about fear and how much our, we have this need to be in our little protective bubble, and so they want us to buy their product instead of somebody else's. Again, in, in, in marketing, in commercializing things, fine, whatever. But that's not how we're meant to live our faith to be motivated by fear and that we have to make all of our effort about keeping ourselves safe and living in this bubble of safety that we expect God to keep us in. You know, I remember when, uh, when Joy and I were pretty newly married, I think all we had was Taylor at the time, and we got invited to this, uh, this dinner. It was a free dinner at Damon's. Remember when Damon's down on Washington Road before it was a Mi Rancho? And we got invited down there for this free dinner with a group of people, and all we had to do was listen to a... Uh, a little spiel about smoke detectors. And I said, shoot, I'll do that. I can listen to that all day if I'm getting free ribs. So we went to this meal. We sat down, we're eating away, and this guy gets up, starts giving his presentation, and he's telling us that our smoke detectors in our house don't work. I said, really? You've never been to my house. He said, it doesn't matter. I know the kind they put in houses. If you bought it at one of these big box stores, they don't work. I said, well, that's interesting. And I was in construction, you know, so I knew enough to know this guy was just trying to sell me something. And he goes on to say, like, you know, it's not a matter of if you're going to have a fire in your home. It's a matter of when. And then he starts this slideshow, and he starts showing us pictures of houses that had burned. And he shows us some, actually some graphic pictures that I thought were inappropriate. And it was all about fear. And I'm watching the slideshow, and I'm like, man, you are barking up the wrong tree as I'm licking my lips and chomping on my ribs, you know. <laughs> Problem was, I looked over at my wife, and I saw her face. And I knew then. And not only was I walking out of Damon's with a full belly of ribs, I was walking out with some smoke detectors. And I did. And his fear tactics worked. And we spent way too much money on these smoke detectors. But you know what? Again, if you're going to use that in society and in selling stuff, whatever. I mean, people can do what they want. But too oftentimes we approach our faith the same way. That it's all about how we can keep ourselves safe. It's all about how I can stay comfortable, how I can be in this protective bubble. Because society, society is all about protecting themselves. And here's the deal. Society doesn't understand faith. People outside of the faith don't understand it. The motive in society, the motive for humans that aren't a people of faith is all about themselves. And why wouldn't it be? We're born with this innate desire for self-protection. So that's how they live. And, and humanism is the, the motto of the day. It's always been that way that, that, that says basically the, the meaning of life is the happiness of man. Like if it makes me feel good, I can do it. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's fine for me to do it. That's, that's how society works. And it's all about making sure I'm safe and I'm protected and I'm taking care of me and mine and those really close to me. But we as followers of Jesus know that the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says that the meaning of life is for the glory of God. That the meaning of our life is about glorifying him first. Does it mean he doesn't care about our safety and about our comfort? No, it doesn't mean that. He does care about that. But it is not at the pinnacle. It's not the top priority for him. And it can't be the top priority for us. And if we came to Jesus and we live this life of faith only because of what, how Jesus can say, protect us and make us comfortable and bless us and give us what we need. I'm not even talking just about physical safety. I'm talking about like a financial safety and making sure all of my needs are met perfectly and that I'm all safe and wrapped up tightly in this little blanket that Jesus has me wrapped in and he's cradling me in his arms, making sure nothing will ever touch me. That's not the gospel. It's not meant to be the number one priority amongst us as followers of Jesus. And you may disagree with me. You may say, well, I don't believe that. I believe God really is all about my safety and my blessing and my taking care of my needs and, and doing those things for me as I live for him. Well, then if that's the case, then God is failing people every day. And God doesn't fail people. He has never let anybody down in the history of the world. So for the, for the apostles that were martyred for their faith, for John the Baptist, who was martyred for his faith, for the countless Christians that have been martyred and, and persecuted and tortured for their faith around this world, even today, then that means God's letting all of them down. That God has turned his back on them and said, you know what, thanks for loving me, but I don't have time for you right now. 
And that's not who God is. But if safety is our top concern, every time something happens that's not what we want it to be, then we feel like God's letting us down. That's how we get frustrated with God. But that's not meant to be our top priority. That's not meant to be everything for us because for us it's about the glory of God in our life. There are countless verses in the Bible that contradict this idea that God is just all about me and holding me tight and making sure nothing ever happens to me. Jesus promised us in this world we're going to have trouble. He said it. And not only that, that verse in Matthew 7 that I shared about the two houses, it says that the one house was built on the sand, one on the rock, and it says the storms came, the waters rose, the winds blew. It happened to both houses. The house built on the rock was still having to deal with the things of this world that come our way. It was still having to deal with the storms, the waters rising, the wind blowing. The difference is the foundation. See, the difference is when we're, when we're living for Jesus, the storms don't destroy us. We actually learn obedience through our suffering. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. I think we can too. We learn obedience through our suffering. It, uh, we bring glory to God through our suffering. I know for me, the toughest times I've ever had, I feel like God was glorified through those more than the good times. Because I've learned what it looks like to serve him and follow him and trust him even in the midst of trials. And that's what it's about. That is absolutely what this gospel life is about. So how do I know if I'm all about safety? Well, first of all, if, you, if your faith never requires you to sacrifice, you're probably all about safety. Because faith includes sacrifice. If you've never asked God to stretch you, you've never asked him to take you out of your comfort zone because you're too scared, you're like, your, your faith is about safety. Because it's not meant to be that way. If you've told God, or you don't even tell God, but if God's not allowed to touch your money, unless it's to give you more, then you're too focused on your safety. I know that's a hard word, but you know what? Our money's not ours. Our money, everything we have is from God, so it's all his. And he asks us to, to tithe, he asks us to give 10% back, but it's all his, The 100% of it's his. So if, if you've never allowed God to speak to your heart to give, get you to plant a seed in someone's life, and I'm not even talking about at the church. This isn't some ploy to get you to give money to the church. I'm talking about the people in your life. You can have just as much fruit. You can see the glory of God work through you and your finances if you bless a neighbor that has a need just as much as if you give it to the church. And we're called to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. But if God can't touch your money, you're probably all about safety and wanting him to just take care of what you need. If you only pray and read the Bible when you need something, probably about your safety it's probably about your comfort if the only acceptable outcome where you won't be upset with God is for him to answer your prayers in the way you want you're probably too much about safety if your faith is more about not going to hell than it is loving Jesus come on guys our faith is not just about not going to hell that's a big huge perk for sure but it can't be all about that it's got to be about loving him and living for him. Because the other is not biblical Christianity, it's cultural Christianity. And if you really want to have a genuine faith, we have to identify with Jesus. And you might say, well, that's good. I want to identify with him. I do identify with Jesus. But listen, there's more than one way to identify with Jesus. We want to identify with the victorious Jesus, with the triumphant Jesus, with the redeeming Jesus, with the healing Jesus. Jesus. We want to identify with that Jesus. But you know what? There's another aspect, another characteristic of Jesus the Bible tells us that we have to identify with too. If we're really going to be a follower of his, we have to identify with his suffering too. We have to identify with his suffering. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, look at this verse in 16 and 17. It says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's the good news. Praise God for that. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, everyone say, if indeed. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So, you want to be a child of God? Share in his sufferings. If you want to share in the glory, you got to share in his sufferings. Now, it's not saying we look for suffering. We're not... We're not masochists. We're not looking to hurt ourselves or hurt others or anything like that physically, emotionally, 
financially, whatever it is. We don't look for those things. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that suffering will come. Paul's telling us suffering is going to come. And when it comes, it's not about us getting angry with God that he didn't fix our situation. It's about us identifying with the fact that, yes, Jesus suffered too. So if I have to suffer, my suffering can bring glory to him. You see, Jesus didn't suffer for us to eliminate all suffering on this earth. If he did, none of us would suffer. I say it again. Jesus did not suffer for us to eliminate all suffering. He suffered to eliminate the suffering that means nothing. Our suffering is not meaningless anymore. Now our suffering can actually glorify God. Our suffering can actually bring people into the kingdom. Our suffering can actually cause us to grow in our faith. It's not for nothing anymore, church, because of what Jesus did. But we have to identify with him in the suffering that he did too. In fact, Peter tells us as well that we can rejoice in suffering. 1 Peter 4.13, it says, But rejoice in participating in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We can actually have joy because we're going to see his glory revealed in our suffering if we identify with the suffering of Jesus. That's great, that's beautiful, church, because we're going to suffer anyway. We all suffer. We all have things come into our life that we don't want, whether it's a huge suffering or whether it's a small suffering. We all have things come into our life that we don't want, but it does not have to be for nothing, and God can be glorified through it. God is being glorified through the suffering that Pastor Bowen's dealing with right now. He's being glorified through it. The nurses are even noticing what's happening, telling, him, telling us to keep praying because they're seeing the prayers being effective in him. His suffering is not for nothing. And I can tell you, I talked to Pastor Bowen last week, and I know that I know that I know that he would say, if, this is, if i got to do this for God to get glory, I'm okay with that. That's got to be our heart. Not, oh God, put a bubble around me so nothing bad ever happens to me. But show me how you can be glorified in the midst of my suffering. That's his desire for all of us. You see, the Bible tells us that we should test our faith. Did you know that? We should test our own faith. And you know, this week was exam week at school. My kids had some exams. And you know what? I can always tell when they're ready for the exam because they're just eager to get it over with. You know, like, let's just go. I need to go. Let's do it. Get it over with. I got it. I, I know this stuff. And you know, when, you're, when you know the stuff, you're, you're almost excited to sit down and get that thing in front of you so you can just do it and get the stuff out of your head and get a good grade, right? But when you don't know it, it's a different story. I mean, you're praying for a power outage, a fire drill, checking your temperature every 15 minutes, hoping somehow that thermometer can read wrong so you can tell your mom you're not feeling good. Whatever it takes, right? When you're not ready for the test. But when you're ready, you're ready. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, to test our faith. In verse, chapter 13, verse 5, look what he says. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Church, this is written to a church. It's written to us. Because I know some of us would say, oh, God doesn't want us to, he doesn't test us. That's not what God does. He's not a, he's not a tester. Yes, he is. God brings tests all the time. It's very scriptural. He doesn't tempt us, and he doesn't bring the trials, but he brings tests in our life to test our faith. Peter talks about it as well. And Paul's saying here, test your faith. Test yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. You don't hear a lot of sermons on this verse because this, is, this, is having, this makes us look introspectively and say, okay, where am I in my faith? Where am I in my faith? So how does this test work? Well, I can tell you what it's not about. It's not about trying to sit in there and trying to figure out whether or not you sinned this week. You know, whether or not you said some curse words or, or had some road rage. Maybe you can't give up smoking. Maybe you got other issues in your life. Maybe you missed church a couple times last month or you haven't been tithing or you haven't been generous with your finances with other people either. And they're like thinking about all the things you should do or the things you shouldn't do that you do. That's not what this test is about. It's not about being nice or patient or friendly. Or looking like a certain person, looking like the person in my text verse that said, Lord, Lord, I did all these things. That's not the test. It's not about behavior modification. The motive is not to try to look a certain way because I'm a Christian. There's only one question on this test. One very, very simple question. Do you love Jesus? That's it. 
And before you answer that too flippantly and say yes, because I think we all would in this place today probably, because we do to some level. But let me tell you, love for Jesus is different than love for a spouse. It's different than love for a parent or a child. It's different than love for your dog. Different than love for your cell phone. It's different than all of those loves. In fact, Jesus told us that your love for him, in comparison to your love for your family, that should look like hate. That's how much we're supposed to love him. Love for Jesus is about commitment. It is about being completely committed to him. It is about serving him. It is about laying down your life for him. See, when we love other things, even people, family in our lives, we can kind of give them a little bit and, and, and not necessarily be completely committed to certain areas and they're okay with it because that's just what love looks like some ways on this earth sometimes. But he's saying love for Jesus is so, so much more than just saying, yes, I love you and I'm here for you. The question is, is he the king of your heart? Is he the king of your heart? Does he have your heart? Is there any area in your heart that you're not willing to give to him? Or is he the king? Are you, are you saying to him, yes, God, you can have all of it. Does he have first place in your life? Because when it comes to faith, it's not about the behavior. It's about the affection for him. That's what it's looking like in our life. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13. He says, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures to the end. Endures in what? What do we have to endure to the end in? Well, he tells us there very clearly. He says the love of some is going to grow cold. So the endurance is all about enduring in the love for him. This is why you can't say, well, I said a prayer 20 years ago, so I'm okay. He says you have to endure. Enduring that, you know what? The, the, the outworking of our faith doesn't make us saved. It is the evidence of us being saved. Staying on the path is the evidence of us being saved. It's not what makes us saved. It's the evidence. It's not about trying to fix our behavior. It's about loving him. And he works that behavior in our lives. That's what it looks like. Enduring till the end. That's why Jesus is saying to some people that might have said a prayer or might have had a moment where they thought they loved God, that's why he's saying to some of them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because we have to endure till the end. We have to stay on the path. You know, I said we were celebrating Pentecost Sunday today. Praise God for the outpouring of his Holy Spirit that started the church 2,000 years ago. But you know, when Peter got up and preached to all those people on that day after they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes out and he preaches to all these people. There's no evidence to suggest that he gave some eloquent, charismatic, great sermon with perfect illustrations or anything like that. Or that they had a worship time beforehand where the band was just killing it and everything was going great before he gave this message. It just says he got up and he started telling them about Jesus. And he said, listen, this Jesus that you crucified, that you killed, he is now Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah. He is seated at the right hand. You tried to kill him. He came out of the grave three days later, and he lives. And you know what the people said? They said, what must we do? The Bible says that they were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we have to do? This is what salvation looks like for us, church. That we would be cut to the heart. That we would see that it was us that put Jesus on that cross. When I read the Gospels, it's not Roman soldiers that put him on the cross. It wasn't the Pharisees that put him on the cross. It was my sin that put him on the cross. And it was, it's me that deserves the judgment that Jesus got. It's me that deserves to be separated from God for eternity. And I'm cut to the heart. And I see it and I say, God, what must I do? We have to be cut to the heart, church, and to see that we don't deserve any of the good things God gives us. He gives them to us because he is a loving, wonderful, merciful, gracious father. But our heart needs to be, God, what must I do? And the answer is simple. Peter told him very simply. He said, repent and be baptized. That's salvation. Repent. Repent is not a one-time thing where you say a couple things and say, God, I welcome you into my heart. Repentance is a lifestyle. It starts on the day of salvation, but it continues your whole life. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We live our life 
continually turning away from the things of the world. Repent means to turn away from. So we're constantly turning away from the things of the world because there's always things in this world that are pulling at our attention and at our affection and for our love. Always. So we constantly have to be saying, repent. Repent and turn our hearts towards him. You know what Peter didn't say when they said, what do we have to do? He didn't say, well, I need you to make sure you have good church attendance. I need you to make sure you give at least 10%, maybe more. I need you to make sure you stop cussing. I need you to make sure that you hang out with Christian friends. I need you to do this and this and this. He didn't give him a list of things to do, even though those things are good. That's not what it means to be saved. He says, repent and be baptized. And then he tells them, he says, save yourself from this corrupt generation. That's what Peter told him. And that's the word for us today, church. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. The world is corrupt. Politicians are corrupt. Leaders are corrupt. Everything about this world, this is the kingdom of the enemy. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Don't go with the masses. Don't think that because everybody else is doing it this way, I can do it that way too. As long as I'm a little bit better, God will be pleased. It's not what it's about. It's about a complete and total surrender to him and commitment to him. This is how we should approach our life. And this is what God would ask of each and every one of us. Would you stand with me, please? As I, I want to give you one more parable to illustrate what I'm saying today. So Jesus gives this parable in Luke 18, where he says there's two guys that go into the temple. The one's a Pharisee. He's religious as all get out. He knows everything to do. He knows the right things. He's actually, he's a, he's a devout Pharisee. He goes in to pray. And the other guy that's in there is a tax collector which was the lowest of the low for them because tax collectors were typically corrupt because the more they got from the people, the more they could keep for themselves. So the Pharisee goes into the temple and he's got his chest out. And he's looking up to heaven. And he's saying, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other people, that I'm not an adulterer, that I'm not a fornicator, that I'm not an evildoer. And most of all, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. He's like, thank you, God, that I'm so amazing. Thank you that I know you and that I serve you and that I've kept my life clean for you. Sounds like a lot of the church, doesn't it? Then you got the tax collector over here. Jesus said the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. I said he just kept beating his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, God. And you know what? It's easy for us to look at him and say, well, he is a sinner. He should be saying that. You know what God said? You know what Jesus said about that scenario? He said, who left that room justified? The tax collector. The Pharisee, with his chest out and his head up and his haughty, proud attitude, did not leave justified. Basically, he's the one Jesus saying, I don't know you. I don't know who you are, but you're not one of mine. Because one of mine would never be that way. One of mine would never think that they deserve heaven. The, 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 if you think you, that you deserve heaven, that's the first sign that you don't have a clue what the gospel is. I don't care how long you've been saved. None of us deserve heaven. Every single day, his mercies are new because they have to be. Because we don't deserve any of the good things that come from him, especially being with him in eternity. That our hearts would be, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve you. That he would cut us to the heart and we would see for who we really are and see him for who he really is. That we wouldn't subscribe to this cultural Christianity that says, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I know a little bit of my Bible and I'm, I try to be good, so I think I'm okay. Nope. That we would be that tax collector on our knees, not even looking up to heaven because we can't even make eye contact with God once we realize who we really are compared to who he is. And listen, church, I'm not saying we need to walk around with our head down feeling horrible about how horrible of a person we are. But I'm talking about in our posture when it comes to our faith in Jesus. We can be bold in the fact that we know that we are saved by his blood. Okay, We don't need to get saved every day. But understanding that it's the only reason we're saved is because of what Jesus did. That it's Jesus plus nothing. And that he deserves my whole life. And whatever areas of my life are holding me back, God help me. God, have mercy on me. Church, I've been that Pharisee in that story way too many times. And I don't want to be that Pharisee. I don't want to be that guy that goes to God and says, God, look what I'm doing for you. God, I love you so much. I'm so thankful that, I, you, that I'm not like those other people. 
I don't want to be that one. I want to be the guy over here that's saying, God, have mercy on me. Because I know my heart, guys. And I, and I know you know your heart. The Bible's clear that our hearts are not good. Yes, when we give our heart to Jesus, he comes in, he gives us a new heart. But we still got the flesh. We're still selfish. We still have our own selfish motives in this life. And God would say, just come, repent. Ask me for mercy and I'll give it every single time. But that there would be nothing in our life that would keep us away from him. You know, Paul, towards the end of his ministry, was when he was quoted as saying, I am the worst of all sinners. That was after he wrote a large portion of the New Testament. And you can look at that and think, man, that's weird. Like, is that false humility that he's just trying to act so humble? No, it's because he saw himself in light of who God is. He said, I'm the worst of all sinners. When I see his goodness and his glory and his majesty, I know how much I desperately need him. That should be our heart too. Let's come to him today and ask him to show us our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you today. God, we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve your blessings, but Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, today we come to you and we say, have mercy on us. We are the worst of all sinners. God, I thank you today that we know that our salvation is secure as we live for you and as we trust you and as we love you. Lord, I pray that whatever areas in our heart that we have blocked off from you, that we have said, nope, can't have that. Or nope, I'm not willing to give to this. I'm not willing to give my life for this. I'm picking and choosing the aspects of my faith. Lord, would you forgive us for doing that? We repent of that today, God, and we give you our whole bodies. Our whole body, mind, soul, and spirit. It's all yours, Jesus. It's all yours. We lay down our life for you, that you would be glorified in our life, in the good and in the suffering, that you would be glorified, Lord Jesus, that we would not approach life about convenience, but we would be complete in you. We thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Teach us to love you more every day, every single day. Draw us closer to you for your glory, God. We worship you today, Jesus worship you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord. Guys, we serve a a really, really wonderful God. He's so good, but he does ask us for our lives. I just challenge you today, whatever areas of your life you haven't been given to him, ask him to to cut you to the heart, to cut your heart so you can see it. Because that's the times when we, when we are cut to the heart and we see his glory and we see ourselves, the response is always going to be, what do I have to do? What must I do? That's where God can work in our lives in ways you never could have imagined. And that's what he wants to do for each of us. Amen? Amen.